friend of mine um, has several nieces, and uh, two of them were sharing a room, and one was about seven years old, and the other one about four years old. And the seven-year-old one night had a, a really bad nightmare and woke up in the middle of the night. And her nightmare was that her parents had died. And I don't know what inspired her or got that thought in her head, but for some reason she had this nightmare, and she woke up in a panic, crying, and she ran to her parents' bedroom. Um, and lo and behold, they were still alive. They were still there. It was just a bad dream. But she had made so much commotion that she woke up her four-year-old sister, and she kind of followed her out of curiosity into the parents' bedroom. And as her mother is consoling the seven-year-old, you know, and nothing bad happened to us, don't worry, we're not going anywhere, it was just a bad dream, you know, comforting her. Um, the four-year-old just kind of standing there. And in the haze of waking up in the middle of the night and maybe thinking for the first time about what it would be like if her parents were gone, she just said, we could have gum whenever we wanted. And, of course, this became a family legend. It was hilarious at the time um, and very cute, but also kind of disturbing at the same time to think of a four-year-old um, sort of fantasizing about her parents' death so that she could have candy. <laughs> but there's something very human about it that we kind of understand at the same time. That as kids, you don't really understand all that your parents do for you. Really what you see is their rules and restrictions and punishments and discipline, the things that we don't really like, but that we don't also understand are actually for our good, that it's not good for us to have candy or gum or ice cream whenever we want because those things aren't good for us, maybe in moderation, and our parents doled them out to us when we um, want them and, and it's good for us, but certainly not as much as we want. We don't know how to live our own lives yet. We haven't been disciplined or, or brought up to make the right decisions. I think this is a great metaphor for our relationship to God. That Adam and Eve, from the very beginning, and each and every one of us who have this fallen nature, this disease of sin in us, all suspect that maybe, just maybe, um, life would be better without God. That if he weren't around, or if he didn't exist, or even just for this moment, he weren't looking at me, and I could do whatever I wanted, I might be more happy. And so we have this sort of assassination attempt on God to live my life as if God doesn't exist. I sort of metaphorically kill him. Right? There's this part of us that would rather have gum than parents. And in the whole Bible, there's always this dynamic of putting God at arm's length and living as if he doesn't exist, and then eventually just forgetting that he does. We've lived so long as if God doesn't exist for our own um, narcissistic or selfish wants and desires that we kind of forget how to live the way God wants us to live. And the story of Israel is the story of God constantly calling the people back, back to himself, to repentance, to obedience to the law, not for God's benefit, but for theirs, so that they can be happy again. Our first reading today is from the book of Nehemiah. Now, the, the twin books of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, are only read from once in the entire three-year cycle of the liturgy. Um, and so it's worth examining what they're about. You might know that Israel um, was exiled almost 600 years before Christ, about 587 B.C. Um, the kingdom of Judah, the southern two tribes, 
were exiled. The Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar came and conquered Jerusalem. The same temple in Jerusalem that Solomon the king had built was destroyed. Like the very center of uh, Israelite life and worship was destroyed. Along with the whole city, all its walls, all its buildings, it was just annihilated. And all of the important people, the leaders of government and religion, were all exiled to Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, between the Tigris and Euphrates River, the Persian Gulf. They were exiled there for about 50 years until Cyrus the Persian, the Persian Empire from the east, present-day Iran, conquered Babylon, conquered um, the kings of Babylon, and freed the Jewish people to send them back and even gave them money to rebuild the temple and orders to rebuild the temple. But, of course, that took decades to do. Among the first to go back to rebuild were Nehemiah and Ezra. Ezra was a priest and Nehemiah was something like a government official. And both were given orders and resources to rebuild. Nehemiah built the walls around Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to separate it from the rest. And, and Ezra, the priest, was to oversee the building of the temple. But they weren't just rebuilding a city and they weren't just rebuilding a temple. They were rebuilding a culture. Because many of those people that were exiled in Babylon completely forgot about God, completely forgot about the covenant. They just started living like Babylonians. They just started living like the people around them, the same values, the same habits, the same rhythms of life. It was a totally kind of foreign thing for many of them. Many of them weren't even born when the, when the first temple was destroyed, and now they were on to rebuild it. How were they supposed to remember? They weren't even around. And so Ezra one day gets out the, the Torah and just pulls everybody together, all the hundreds and thousands of people that have been freed from exile and now are back in Jerusalem and are kind of like, what are we supposed to do now? And he just reads all day from the Torah, the five books, the five first books of the Bible. And all of the men, all of the women, and all the children old enough to understand, he just reads to them and explains as he goes what this is about. What is the Passover? What is the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Weeks? And actually... The people are like, oh, we have that feast? We should start celebrating that again. It would be like if you forgot about Christmas, that you didn't know there was such a thing as Christmas. And somebody got up and said, hey, there's this thing where uh, 2,000 years ago, God was born to a virgin and we celebrate it every year and you should go get a tree and Santa Claus comes and you're like, whoa, I've never heard of that. That's what the people were like. And their first reaction was to weep. They cried. Because they realized that they had forgotten what they had forgotten, what they had given up. For what? Candy? Gum? Ice cream? They had given up their relationship with God the Father, who cared for them, who loved them, who provided for them. And Ezra says, it's not a time to weep, it's a time to rejoice. God doesn't want you to wallow in your guilt. He wants you to drink rich wines and eat find meats and and to rejoice because now you remember who you are. You have your heritage again, your inheritance as the people, the chosen people of God. Be glad. So they rebuild the temple, they rebuild the walls, they, they rebuild the culture, and Nehemiah goes back because he made a promise to the Persian king that I'm just going to go there, but as your, as your servant, I'm going to come back and, and serve you again. And it doesn't say how many years later, maybe 10, 15, 20 years later, Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem and finds that they've all forgotten again, basically. I mean, the temple's there again, but the temple's being used as like a storeroom for a foreign governor now. 
The Sabbath law, one of the most central uh, rhythms of the Jewish life, is now being abused and people are selling and buying on the Sabbath rather than resting and worshiping. People are intermarrying. The men are marrying pagan uh, women and the, and the uh, pagan men are marrying Jewish women and there's this intermarriage going on that's causing all sorts of difficulty in terms of the of Jewish identity and culture and religion. And so Nehemiah has to call them back again. And these three things, which I think are applicable to us today, the reform of the temple, he's saying, no, guys, remember, we built this as a house of prayer. This is not for making money. This is not for your own social gatherings. This is for worshiping God. There's a saying that God has no grandchildren, only children. And in every generation, the faith needs to be renewed. We need to take ownership of our faith. And so we, our generation, needs to realize that these places that are set apart are places of prayer. To even have part of our life set apart for prayer is sort of revolutionary. C.S. Lewis said in the 1950s or 60s that uh, modern, the modernity says, you can be religion, religious on your own time, in your own private time, but we're going to make sure that you're never alone, that you never have any private time. That was before the internet and social media. That was just like television and radio. He realized all the noise of modern life keeps you from ever having any part of your life that's simply sacred, simply for prayer. We need this reform just as much as the people in Nehemiah's time need to pray, to be with God. Or the Sabbath rest. Nehemiah came back and people were selling and buying on the Sabbath day and he said, no, we're shutting the city gates on the Sabbath. On Friday night, the Sabbath was Saturday. Friday night to Saturday evening, from sundown to sundown, nobody can come in and out. No merchants from other lands, from other cities can come and sell their wares. But what he found was that all the people then, all the merchants, the Jewish merchants, would just sit and wait at the, at the gate, like inside the city of Jerusalem. They wouldn't go to, to the temple to worship. They'd just sit and sleep, like nodding off, waiting for the, for the doors to finally open so they could do business again. All they cared about was money and work, productivity. They didn't want to take the rest that was needed to worship God, to be with their families, to be with the Lord who saved them. And so today, you know, even when I was a kid, which was a long time ago, I admit, <laughs> there used to be a lot more clo stores closed on Sunday. Right now, everything is open on Sunday. I remember my dad ordered like batteries for something on Amazon and it showed up on Easter Sunday. And he's like, oh man, I feel so bad. This person is working on Easter Sunday, delivering batteries for me. Like, it doesn't matter. I could have waited till Monday. But we're so frenzied with work and money and productivity and the things we want in consumerism that we take no rest. We need this reform just as much as the people of Nehemiah's time. And then this mixed marriages kind of doesn't make sense to us today, but it's symbolic. I mean, people can marry uh, people of different religions, different cultures. Of course, that's okay. But in, in the time of Nehemiah, what this meant was that Solomon, for instance, had married pagan women. He had several wives. And what happened was that he started worshiping not only Yahweh, but also Moloch and, and Baal and all of the other pagan gods because that's who his family worshipped. Right? So he didn't just have the Jewish religion, but worshipped all the gods. He kind of hedged his bets. And this is what's happening with the people in Nehemiah's time. Well, how do we do that? We don't just focus on what God wants for us, but we compromise with the surrounding culture or way of life, the Babylonian way of life, so to speak, which today is what? 
It's, I, I can't remember where I read this, but they summed up kind of like the modern secular way of life as this. Love things, use people, worship yourself. That's basically the value system. It's kind of not the kindest evaluation of the, of the modern value system. But I think if you look at it, it's sort of right. Like, I'm the most important person. And the things around me, those are the things that I love. And the people in my life, I sort of use them for my own benefit, for my own pleasure. Whereas the Christian way of life, a life centered on Christ, is the opposite. It's love people, even those who are difficult to love. Use things in order to love them and worship God. How often do we compromise, though, with the surrounding world or culture? Do we on Sunday worship God, try to love people, use things, but then when we go out there, we sort of compromise and mix our marriage with both Christ and the world? The point is this, is that we are like spoiled kids who sometimes would rather have gum than parents. And when we realize that, when God calls us back to himself and reminds us who we really are, it might cause us to weep. Hopefully it does. Because we've been ungrateful for what we have. We've seen God not as a father, as a caretaker, but as a disciplinarian, as an authoritarian, and we resent him. And then when we realize how much he loves us, that all of those laws, all of those disciplines are there for our benefit to keep us safe and to give us life, causes us to weep. But God does not want us to wallow in our guilt. He says, today is a a day to be glad and to rejoice. Be glad in the Lord because he's saved you. He's given you this law as your life, as the way into life. So be glad.